0: Fourteen of Fraternity by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Ellers. Chapter Fourteen: A Walk Abroad. Time Darrison, in the midst of her busy life, found a leisure to record her recollections and ideas in the pages of old school notebooks. She had no definite purpose in so doing, nor did she desire the solace of luxuriating in her private feelings. This she would have scorned out-of-date and silly. It was done with the fulness of youthful energy, and from the desire to express oneself that was in the air. It was everywhere, that desire, among her fellow students, among her young men-friends, in her mother's drawing-room and her aunt's studio. Like sentiment and marriage to the Victorian Miss, so was this duty to express herself to time, and, going hand-in-hand hand with it, the duty to have a good, and Johnny youth. She never read again the thoughts which she recorded. She took no care to lock them up, knowing that her liberty, development and pleasure were sacred things which no one would dream of touching. She kept them stuffed down in a drawer among her handkerchiefs and ties and blouses, together with the indelible fragment of a pencil. The journal, naive and slipshod, recorded without order the current impression of things on her mind. In the early morning of the 4th of May she sat, nightgowned, on the foot of her white bed, with chestnut hair all fluffy about her neck, eyes bright and cheeks still rosy with sleep, scribbling away and rubbing one bare foot against the other in the ecstasy of self-expression. Now and then, in the middle of a sentence, she would stop and look out of the window, or stretch herself deliciously, as though life were too full of joy for her to finish anything. I went into Grandfather's room yesterday and stayed while he was dictating to the little model. How do you think Grandfather's so splendid? Martin says an enthusiast is worse than useless. People, he says, can't afford to dabble in ideas or dreams. He calls Grandfather's ideas paleolithic. I hate it to be laughed at. Martin's so cocksure. I don't think he'd find many men of 80 who'd bathe in the serpentine all the year round and do his own room, cook his own food and live on about £90 a year out of his pension of 300 and give all the rest away. Martin says that's unsound and the book of the Universal Brotherhood is rot. I don't care if it is. It's fine to go on writing it, as he does all day. Martin admits that. That's the worst of him. He's so cool you can't score him off. He seems to be always criticising you. It makes me wild. That little model is a hopeless duffer. I could have taken it all down in half the time. She kept stopping and looking up with that mouth of hers half open, as if she had all day before her. Grandfather's so absorbed, he doesn't notice. He likes to read the thing over and over to hear how the words sound. That girl would be no good at any sort of work, except sitting, I suppose. Aunt Bee be used to say she sat well. There's something queer about her face. It reminds me a little of that Botticelli Madonna in the National Gallery, the full-faced one. Not so much in the shape as in the expression. Almost stupid, and yet as if things were going to happen to her. Her hands and arms are pretty, and her feet are smaller than mine. She's two years older than me. I asked her why she went in for being a model, which is beastly work. She said she was glad to get anything. I asked her why she didn't go into a shop or into service. She didn't answer at once, and then said she hadn't had any recommendations, didn't know where to try. Then all of a sudden she grew quite sulky, and said she didn't want to. Time paused to pencil in a sketch of the little model's profile. She had on a really pretty frock, quite simple and well made. It must have cost three or four pounds. She can't be so very badly off, or somebody gave it to her. And again Time paused. She looked ever so much prettier in it than she used to in her old brown skirt, I thought. Uncle Henry came to dinner last night. We talked of social questions. We always discuss things when he comes. I can't help liking Uncle Henry. He has such kind eyes and he's so gentle that you never lose your temper with him. Martin calls him weak and unsatisfactory because he's not in touch with life. I should say it was more as if he couldn't bear to force anyone to do anything. He seems to see both sides of every question, and he's not good at making up his mind, of course. He's rather like Hamlet, might have been, only nobody seems to know now what Hamlet was really like. I told him what I thought about the lower classes. One could talk to him. I hate father's way of making feeble little jokes as if nothing were serious. I said I didn't think it was any use to dabble we ought to get to the root of everything. I said that money and class distinctions are two bogies we have got to lay. Martin says, when it comes to real dealing with social questions and the poor, all the people we know are amateurs. He says that we've got to shake ourselves free of all the old sentimental notions and just work at putting everything to the test of health. Father calls Martin a sanitist, and Uncle Henry says that if you wash people by law, they'll all be as dirty again tomorrow. Time paused again. A blackbird in the garden of the square was uttering a long, low, chuckling trill. She ran to the window and peeped out. The bird was on a plane tree, and with throat uplifted, was letting through his yellow beak that delicious piece of self-expression. All things he seemed to praise. The sky, the sun, the trees, the dewy grass, himself. You darling, thought Time. With a shudder of delight she dropped her notebook back into the drawer, flung off her nightgown and flew into her bath. That same morning she slipped out quietly at ten o'clock. Her Saturdays were free of classes, but she had to run the gauntlet of her mother's liking for her company and her father's wish for her to go with him to Richmond and play golf. For on Saturdays Stephen almost always left the precincts of the court before three o'clock. Then, if he could induce his wife or daughter to accompany him, he liked to get a round or two in preparation for Sunday, when he always started off at half-past ten and played all day. If Cecilia and Time failed him, he would go to his club and keep himself in touch with every kind of social movement by reading the reviews. Time walked along with her head up and a wrinkle in her brow, as though she were absorbed in serious reflection. If admiring glances were flung at her, she did not seem aware of them. Passing not far from Hilary's, she entered to the broad walk and crossed it to the farther end. On a railing, stretching out his long legs and observing the passers by, sat her cousin Martin Stone. He got down as she came up. Late again, he said. Come on. Where are we going first? Time asked. The Notting Hill District's all we can do today for it to go again to Mrs Hughes. I must be down at the hospital this afternoon. Time frowned. I do envy you living by yourself, Martin. It's silly having to live at home. Martin did not answer, but one nostril of his long nose was seen to curve, and time acquiesced in this without remark. They walked for some minutes between tall houses, looking about them calmly. And Martin said. All purses round here. Time nodded. Again there was silence, but in these pauses there was no embarrassment, no consciousness apparently that it was silence, and their eyes, those young, impatient, interested eyes, were forever busy observing. Boundary line, We should be in a patch directly. Black, asked Time. My dark blue, black further on. They were passing down a long, grey, curving road, whose narrow houses, hopelessly unpainted, showed marks of grinding poverty. The spring wind was ruffling straw and little bits of paper in the gutters. Under the bright sunlight, a bleak and bitter struggle seemed raging. Time said, This street gives me a hollow feeling. Martin nodded. Worse than the real article. There's half a mile of this. Here it's all grim fighting. Farther on, they've given it up. And still they went on up the curving street with its few pinched shops and its unending narrow grimness. At the corner of a by street, Martin said, We'll go down here. Time stood still, wrinkling her nose. Martin eyed her. Don't funk. I'm not funking, Martin, only I can't stand the smells. You'll have to get used to them. Yes, I know, but uh, I forgot my eucalyptus. The young man took out a handkerchief which had not yet been unfolded. Here, take mine. They do make me feel so. It's a shame to take yours. And she took the handkerchief. That's all right, said Martin. Come on. The houses of this narrow street, inside and out, seemed full of women. Many of them had babies in their arms. They were working, or looking out of windows, or gossiping on doorsteps. And all stopped to stare as the young couple passed. Time stole a look at her companion. His long stride had not varied. There was the usual pale, observant, sarcastic expression on his face. Clenching the handkerchief in readiness, and trying to imitate his callous air, she looked at a group of five women on the nearest doorstep. Three were seated, and two were standing, one of these, a young woman with a round, open face, was clearly very soon to have a child. The other, with a short, dark face and iron-grey, straggling hair, was smoking a clay pipe. Of the three seated, one, quite young, had a face as grey-white as a dirty sheet and a blackened eye. The second, with her ragged dress disarranged, was nursing a baby. The third, in the centre, on the top step, with red arms akimbo, her face scored with drink, was shouting friendly obscenities to a neighbour in the window opposite. In time's heart rose the passionate feeling, How disgusting! How disgusting! And since she did not dare to give expression to it, she bit her lips and turned her head from them, resenting with all a young girl's horror that her sex had given her away. The women stared at her, and in those faces, according to their different temperaments, could be seen first the same vague, hard interest that had been times when she first looked at them, then the same secret hostility and criticism, as though they too felt that by this young girl's untouched modesty, by her gushed cheeks and unsoiled clothes, their sex had given them away. With contemptuous movements of their lips and bodies. On that doorstep they proclaimed their emphatic belief in the virtue and reality of their own existences, and in the vice and unreality of her intruding presence. If the doll a bill, he'd make her work for once. em In a burst of laughter, the epithet was lost. Martin's lip curled. Purple just here, he said. Time's cheeks were crimson. At the end of the little street, he stopped before a shop. Come on, he said. "'You'll see the sort of place where they buy their grub. "'In the doorway were standing a thin brown spaniel, "'a small fair woman with a high, bald forehead "'from which the hair was gleaned into curl-papers, "'and a little girl with some affection of the skin.' "'Nodding coolly, Martin motioned them aside. "'The shop was ten feet square. "'Its counters, running parallel to two of the walls, "'were covered with plates of cakes, sausages, old ham-bones.' peppermint sweets and household soap. There was also bread, margarine, suet in bowls, sugar, bloaters, many bloaters, captain's biscuits and other things beside. Two or three dead rabbits hung against the wall. All were uncovered, so that what flies there were sat feeding socialistically. Behind the counter a girl of 17 was serving a thin-faced woman with portions of a cheese which she was holding down with her strong and dirty hand, while she sawed it with a knife. On the counter, next to the cheese, sat a quiet-looking cat. They all glanced round at the two young people who stood and waited. Finish what you're at, said Martin, then give me 3 pennyworth of of eyes." The girl, with a violent effort, finished severing the cheese. The thin-faced woman took it, and, coughing above it, went away. The girl, who could not take her eyes off Time, now served them with three pennyworth of bull's eyes, which she took out with her fingers, for they had stuck. Putting them in a screw of newspaper, she handed them to Martin. The young man, who had been observing negligently, touched Time's elbow. She, who had stood with the eyes cast down, now turned. They went out, Martin handing the bull's eyes to the little girl with an affection of the skin. The street now ended in a wide road formed of little low houses. Black, said Martin. Here, all down this road, cattle labour, criminals, loafers, drunkards, consumps. Look at the faces. Time raised her eyes obediently. In this main thoroughfare it was not as in the by street, and only dull or sullen glances, or none at all, were bent on her. Some of the houses had ragged plants on the window sills. In one window, a canary was singing. Then, at a bend, they came into a blacker reach of Human River. Here were outbuildings, houses with broken windows, houses with windows boarded up, fried fish shops, low public houses, houses without doors. There were more men here than women, and those men were weeding barrows full of rags and bottles, or not even full of rags and bottles or they were standing by the public houses gossiping or quarrelling in groups of three or four, or very slowly walking in the gutters or on the pavements, though trying to remember if they were alive. Then suddenly some young man with gaunt violence in his face would pass, pushing his barrow desperately, striding fiercely by. And every now and then, from a fried fish or hardware shop, would come out a man in a dirty apron to take the sun and contemplate the scene, not finding in it, seemingly anything that in any way depressed his spirit. Amongst the constant, crawling, shifting stream of passengers were seen women carrying food wrapped up in newspaper, with bundles beneath their shawls. The faces of these women were generally either very red and coarse, or of a sort of bluish white. They wore the expression of such as know themselves to be existing in the way that Providence has arranged they should exist. No surprise, revolt, dismay or shame was ever to be seen on those faces. In place of these emotions, a drab and brutish acquiescence or mechanical coarse jocularity. To pass like this about their business was their occupation each morning of the year. It was needful to accept it. Not having any hope of ever being different, not being able to imagine any other life, they were not so wasteful of their strength as to attempt either to hope or to imagine. Here and there, too, very slowly, passed old men and women crawling along, like winter bees who, in some strange and evil moment, have forgotten to die in the sunlight of their toil, and, too old to be of use, have been chivied forth from their hive to perish slowly in the cold twilight of their days. Down the centre of the streets, Time saw a brewer's dray creeping its way due south under the sun. Three horses drew it, with braided tails and beribboned manes, the brass glittering on their harness. High up, like a god, sat the drayman, his little slits of eyes above huge red cheeks fixed immovably on his horse's crests. Behind him, with slow, unceasing crunch, the dray rolled, piled up with hogsheads, whereon the drayman's mates lay sleeping. Like the slumbrous image of some mighty unrelenting power, it passed, proud that its monstrous bulk contained all the joy and blessing those shadows on the pavement had ever known. The two young people emerged onto the high road running east and west. Cross here, said Martin, and cut down into Kensington. Nothing more of interest now till we get to Hound Street. Purses and purses all round about this part. Time shook herself. Oh, Martin, let's go down a road where there's some air. I feel so dirty. She put her hand up to her chest. There's one here, said Martin. They turned to the left into a road that had many trees. Now that she could breathe and look about her, Ty once more held her head erect and began to swing her arms. Martin, something must be done. The young doctor did not reply his face still wore its pale, sarcastic, observant look. He gave her arm a squeeze with a half-contemptuous smile. End of chapter 14